You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. Um, my guest this week is Kat Rosenfield. And Kat is a freelance culture writer and the author of several novels, including a collaboration with Marvel founder Stan Lee. She is the host of the co-host of the Feminine Chaos podcast, together with Phoebe Maltz Bovey. And uh, she has uh, also recently joined the team at Persuasion, Yasha Monk's new magazine, which I think some of you know that I also work for um, as our agony aunt. Um, welcome, Kat. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Kat, I wanted to talk to you about, about sexual etiquette and dating life in 2020 and how the, the, the ways in which we think about relationships between men and women may have changed over our lifetimes um, and or what, that, what the implications of that are. Um, so let's, let's begin there. What are some changes that you have noticed, have heard about from other people who write into you, um, or have observed in media attitudes towards, um, the Me Too movement, um, Title IX and other such phenomena? What are, what's, um, what are some of the main changes? Oh gosh, I feel like I've seen so many, um, over the course of, my life from the time that I first started dating when I was a teenager, and that was in the 1990s, uh, to now when I have not actually been on the dating market. I've been married for 12 years to <laughs> to the same man. So, um, you know, I'm not really out there on the single scene at this point experiencing these things firsthand. But when I first started dating, that was at a moment when we were having this sort of... Um, like abstinence, education, uh, purity, revival here in the U.S., spurred kind of by, um, I don't know, sort of the lingering effects of the moral majority. And you had pop stars like Britney Spears signing purity pledges and kind of talking about that very publicly. So there was all of this emphasis on the idea that, um, you know, you should not have sex, premarital sex, you shouldn't have teen sex, you know, teen pregnancy was a huge issue. Um, there was a lot of concern about the idea that sex was sort of degrading, especially to young women or to teenage girls. Um, and since then, we've sort of evolved past that slut shaming uh, sort of era of the, of the dating landscape. And now um, we had the sex in the city moment, which was I realize now a sort of a blip, like a little sex positive blip on the radar. Um, but most recently, I would say that the biggest change that, that I haven't 
ended up experiencing directly, but that has clearly wrought just a huge, huge effects on the dating landscape is, um, you know, apps, smartphones, the fact that people do not really meet in real life. They don't really meet organically. They mostly meet on Tinder or Bumble or, you know, whatever else. Mm, yeah, I'm, I am doing Bumble right now. And I've, uh, it really does change the way in which you uh, relate to people um, on the dating scene. So I've noticed particularly that there is this kind of, um, uh, there is a sort of speed and urgency with which you have to evaluate people um, on Bumble because there's there's an endless stream of men who are, um, who are being shown to me and if I swipe on them, many of them are matching with me. And I have to make these snap decisions about whether I, um, whether I, whether I want to swipe right or click a tick, as it is on Bumble. Whether I want to message them on Bumble, women have to message men first. Um, whether I then want to chat with them, whether I want to call them, whether I want to go on a date, mm-hmm. and I have this. Um, I feel as though to get anywhere, you have to go through this quite efficient throughput system. And it feels very like a, a weird conveyor belt to me. It sounds exhausting, um, actually. It's, it's absolutely exhausting. <laughs> it's really tiring. And it's, um, I think that it, um, I mean, when you meet people in, in real life, what very often happens is, or at least happens to me, is that I may not find them that attractive uh, at first, but the person grows on me um, and I, I'm i exposed to the whole person, to their personality, to our interactions, to our vibe, etc. Whereas on Bumble, I first have to see a picture and then decide, does this picture appeal or not? Um, and then I kind of put out a little chat out there and, and it's really, I find... It's it's surprising how hard I find it to feel any enthusiasm about anybody on Bumble Um, and how easy I find it to crush on people in real life and also on um, even people on Twitter um, and podcast guests. That's interesting. I was about to say that, you know, crushing on people in real life is, it, it seems like it's sort of more what nature intended and what we're designed to do. But then you mentioned Twitter, which is extremely unnatural in every Very possible deeply, way. <laughs> deeply unnatural. But you do have, um, it doesn't have the same job interview feeling that Bumble has. Mm-hmm. It's like, it is a slightly more, it feels slightly more organic because you are having interactions with people that aren't do you want to date me or not? Yes, that's true. I think that that actually makes a huge difference, the sense of, of being in, a, in an evaluative position. Like you said, the job interview, um, where you feel like you are not only evaluating people uh, as dating prospects rather than sort of getting to know them as people and, you know, do I like you or not, Um this is a question you answer sort of more organically, um, but also this the sense of having to present one's own self in a way that's as alluring as possible. Um, yeah, it, it gets complicated. 
Um, yeah, it gets very complicated. I agree. Um, do you, do you notice the kind of change in attitudes that you think might have to do with uh, the dating app culture? Because I think it's really become the main way of, of meeting people. Um, most of my friends who are in relationships or who've be, um, got into relationships recently have met their partners on either at work or on dating apps. And now not at work because of COVID. So. Right, right. And also because of Me Too, it suddenly became kind of taboo to meet your partner at work or to, to flirt with your coworkers, uh, which is something that I think we should definitely talk about uh, yes. in the context of this conversation. But I'm curious whether any of your friends have, you know, these relationships that are forming on dating apps, are they long term? Are they short term? Has anybody gotten married? Um, yeah, I have a couple of friends who married people they met on dating apps. Um, and um, yeah, definitely some people have serious relationships based on people they met on dating apps. And I can already tell from the very short, I guess I've been doing Bumble now for about a month. Um, and I can already tell from the short period that, yeah, some people are definitely um, very uh, serious about this and are um, most of the men who are being shown to me, most of the men in my age group are divorced and um, have children and are now kind of it's been a few years since their divorce and they're now looking to kind of reconnect and I would say that a fair number of them of course, it's not always hard. It's not always easy to tell which ones, which is one of the problems with dating apps. But a fair number of them are definitely looking for something serious. That's interesting. In uh, I, I'm trying to think of who I know who's on dating apps. Most of my peers are either married or have just kind of I think stopped <laughs> stopped trying, stopped bothering. Um, I have a younger brother who's in his early 30s who does use them, and my impression from him is that uh, at least in his age cohort, some people are looking for a serious relationship and some use it as a sort of uh, constantly available carousel of rotating sexual partners. You know, you can always go and find somebody new, which sounds like it has both, you know, drawbacks and benefits depending on what you're looking for. Yeah, of course. I think that, um, I mean, I think there are also lots of people who actually just want to chat, who don't even want to meet up in the physical world at all. Um, probably many of those people are in relationships and are just pretending to be single on the, on the app. Oh. Um, because I have already a number of times had the experience, and I asked other people, and they've told me they've had this experience too, where I was chatting with someone we were getting on really well, and then I said, okay, let's uh, meet up for coffee. And they just ghosted me immediately. One guy actually instantly deleted his account. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <Led> conversation. <laughs> so I'm assuming that his wife walked in or something. That, that makes the most sense as an explanation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, gosh, you know, that's, God, that's, really, that's really funny. It's, it sounds fraught, you know, I suppose in a lot of the, well, 
everything is fraught. Dating is always fraught. But you had asked, you know, what um, what led to apps becoming sort of the primary way that people meet each other. And, you know, on the one hand, I think it was probably always going to happen as more and more of our lives moved online. Um, at the time that I was still dating, I dated a little bit online, but there was a stigma attached to it. It was still considered something that like you would do only because you, you were so kind of gross or you know defective in some way that you couldn't meet people any other way. And um, you know, there was it was unusual to know somebody who had met a spouse or a, you know a boyfriend on uh, at this point it was like a website. It would be match.com or eHarmony. You hardly knew anybody who who either did that or who would necessarily admit to it because it made it seem like there might be something wrong with them. But also, um, in addition to everything having kind of moved online and, and dating moving online the same way as everything else, I think that the kind of present day, I don't want to call it an obsession, but it sort of is um, with consent as sort of the foremost framework through which people are having relationships with each other has started to... Uh, really shape the way that people are engaging with like the idea of dating. Um, you have this notion now that even being approached, you know, being asked out is itself an imposition that might be traumatic. It might be a violation um, because what if that person doesn't want to be approached? So a dating app at least kind of eliminates or was supposed to eliminate any of that ambiguity. Uh, you never had to worry about whether somebody consented to being approached on a dating app, like they were there and that was consent mm -hmm. in and of itself. Yeah. And, and I mean, on many of the apps, the woman has to contact the man uh, in, a, in a heterosexual context, um, which, which also adds to that. Right, right. It's an interesting, you know, in what it implies, because it almost suggests that, you know, it, it suggests things that I think are maybe a, a little bit not great about how fragile women are, um, especially because despite that set up on a lot of apps, I think um, I was reading something recently where, where it turns out that attitudes kind of uh, in the mainstream about who should approach whom in heterosexual courtship have not really changed at all. Um, still a vast majority of both men and women, like somewhere in the range of like 80 to 90 percent, think that the man should be the one to do the pursuing, should be the one to do the approaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I talked also to um, another um, person who gi who gives kind of relationship advice professionally, uh, Amy Alcon. We had a fantastic conversation. Oh, I, I love, love Amy. I love Amy. She's so wonderful. <laughs> but she was very very firm and adamant that um, women ab absolutely shouldn't approach men, and that because this is a strategy that is bound to fail in most cases for evolutionary psychology reasons. Yes, I think Amy puts a little more uh, a m more um, stock into Evo psych than I necessarily do, um, but I do think that you know generally uh, there is that norm, whether it's based in biology or something else, that women women even you know are more comfortable with the idea of being asked than of making the overture. Mm, yeah, I think that one good thing an app, the apps might do is is, ch is shift that norm 
because I think that norm really doesn't work for everybody. Um, some people just are, some women are very assertive and some men are very shy. And um, I do think that, um, I think one of the kind of reasons why women are resistant to this is the idea that asking appears sort of desperate. You mustn't, um, certainly when I was growing up, the feeling was always, as a woman, you shouldn't admit to wanting to be, to go out with someone, um, you sh uh, with a specific person, because that implied a kind of, that you were not enough in demand, um, that you couldn't just sit back and passively wait for people to ask you. Yes, I remember. Um, I don't know if, if you ever read the rules in the, oh God, in the yes, era that. when that was a thing. <laughs> I was, I was, I just missed the rules. Um, but the, but its influence, its lingering influence, was still very much a part of the landscape when uh, when I started dating. Especially once I moved to New York City in my early twenties, um, there was still all of this sort of conventional wisdom floating around out there about how like you never call him first if. He he calls you, you have to wait some amount of time to call him back. It, like you have to, you know, it was like you throw your phone away. Like do not, do not pick it up for 24 hours or you'll look too interested. It's such a funny thing. Yeah. And it's very odd because I, I mean, I, I think that that this might be a positive development of dating apps. One of the few positive developments is that you're on there. So you clearly are interested in looking um, and that is losing its stigma, which I think is very fair, because the other thing I think is very dishonest, like you're pretending to have to feel a kind of blaseness that you don't feel. Um, and while I think it's not good to pin all your hopes of happiness on a relationship, I think it's perfectly OK to be to honestly say you would prefer to be in a relationship and you are seeking that. And I think that there used to be kind of a taboo about, around that, that it was a loser sort of attitude to have or... Isn't that um, funny? Yeah, that's so true. Um, I, you know, I was thinking about how there was this sort of trope of the man who was afraid of commitment um, and, and that suddenly that guy became cool. He became desirable. This man who doesn't want to commit, well, you're going you're gonna to trap him somehow. You're going to be the one who makes him want to commit. And it was like this, you know almost gamification of the idea of dating and of marriage. And um, I was less aware of sort of the structure and the machinery behind that when I was younger. But once I, um, the thing that I eventually realized, and particularly after, um, after I met my husband, who kind of never made any bones about the fact that he, you know, he'd always wanted to, you know, get married and have a family and like be, you know, be a man, um, be like a traditional man, is that this is the normal thing for most people. Most people want this. Um, men and women alike, you know, it, it envisioned themselves growing up and falling in love and getting married and, and forming that companionate partnership for the rest of their lives. That's what everybody wants. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So you were talking about how, how notions of consent have, have shifted. Um, 
following, partly following the Me Too movement, but I think it's earlier than that. I think it begins with a no means no movement, which was happening in kind of 80s and early 90s yeah, so- when I was at university. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and then no means no was deemed insufficient, and it was replaced with yes means yes, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was encouraging for a little while until I saw how it was actually playing out. Mm-hmm. Because no means no is a, it, it's 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 not quite enough. I mean, it's not what you hope for uh, when you have sex with someone is not. They will tolerate this. (laughs) They haven't said no, so we're good. (laughs) They're letting it happen. (laughs) Um, Doesn't sound so appealing. But, you know, yes means yes. So that's what I thought when it first started kind of coming out into the sort of the discourse started shaping around that. I thought, this is great. We are finally talking about sex positivity. We are talking about not just what you don't want, but also what you do want, which women have been not socialized to really express. I mean, it was so taboo for a long time for women to even, you know, express an interest in sex for its own sake to say like, yes, I enjoy this. Um, I find this fun. You know, that was, that was unusual. Um, even, you know, 20 years ago, it was still considered kind of wild for a woman to be like, yes, I, you know, I, I want to have sex. It's something I like for its own sake. Um, and so I think that when, uh, yes means yes first sort of appeared on the scene, I really thought that it was going to still be encouraging women to assert themselves, but also in a positive direction to articulate their desires and to be in touch with their desires, you know, to say like, yes, this is what I want, um, rather than just sort of being passive vehicles for what somebody else wanted and laying back and saying, well, I'll let this happen. Yeah. You know, I'll allow this to happen. Yes. Okay. You can do this. Um, you know, I really saw it as, a way of making the playing field more equal um, and, and imagined that everybody was going to be having so much more fun, so much more really great, you know, enjoyable, enthusiastic sex. And instead, that is not what happened at all. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I'm not really sure, I'm not really sure where we go from here now that, um, the idea, it's its still about permission. It's still about essentially a no about what you, what you don't want to happen. It's just that permission is being sought in the form of an enthusiastic yes. But the permission framework is still there. And I think it's not great. There seems to be a lot of kind of confusion about what it actually means to consent, um, at least in... I'm not sure how much this confusion spills over into people's normal dating lives, but I have definitely noticed it in both in the way things are covered in the media and also in some of the Title IX cases that I have been reading about. Um, And in fact, a friend of mine was holed up before a Title IX tribunal. um, And I... um, I read the account of what he supposedly had done wrong. Um, and um, it was not even his account, the, his accuser's account of why she thought that he should be 
fired from his job. And I I couldn't even understand, looking at the accuser's account, what he was supposed to have done wrong. Um, because to my mind, it didn't seem like, and I can't go into the details, but I, um, it wasn't just a he, he said, she said. It was that what she said did not seem to me to be something that constituted um, harm. Mm-hmm. And it was basically that he asked her out and that made her feel uncomfortable. Um, and then she said no to that. And after she said no, he avoided her. And so she felt he socially ostracized her for saying no to his overtures when he asked her out. Um, it, it, made, it made no sense to me whatsoever. Oh my um, gosh, that's, a, that's it, a crazy story. Because on the one hand, um, I didn't see why she could not just say no. Um, and on the other hand, um, I, it, was, it was obviously quite natural. It would be quite natural to feel awkward um, after you've asked someone out and they've, and they've said no. Yes, of um, course. And, and, so, um, and this was, I mean, this, this was published in a serious venue and, um, and went to a hearing. Um, so, I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite astonished um, by, some of the, by some of the kinds of cases I'm seeing. And there seems to be just a lot of um, confusion over what consent actually is. And I don't think that is going to be helpful in cases where consent really has been violated. Yeah, it's true. I mean, even trying to bring notions of consent into um, non, like a non-sexual realm, where you're literally talking about a, an interaction, you know, a person being a person being asked out on a date. Um, I, I do think that, and this sort of goes back to that that idea of female fragility that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, that it's not good for anybody, and especially not for women, to encourage them to see themselves as having been materially harmed every time a social interaction makes them feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, so much social interaction is uncomfortable, even if you're in a consensual relationship with somebody, a long-term relationship, sometimes you're going to be uncomfortable because there are conflicts or disagreements or what have you. Um, but yes, this notion that, uh, that being asked is a pressure so intense that a woman simply cannot bear it. Um, I, I find that honestly pretty insulting to women and also just to human beings in general, but especially to women. It's, um, I mean, you, you talk about, um, uh, you wrote an article about, about this, and um, I'm going to read a paragraph that you say, which I think is pertinent here. Um, so you're talk, what you're talking about is um, college-age women who have brought Title IX suits or who have, um, who have written tell-all pieces um, and who feel that even though they clearly consented and even uh, verbally consented in the moment, that consent was um, retroactively invalidated because they were um, because they were drunk or because things didn't go well um, or because for whatever reason they felt um, they 
um, they felt icky and bad about what had happened. Um, and I'm going to read it. You say, um, uh, 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 you, you cite the example of Aziz Ansari, which maybe we'll come back to in a moment, but you say a through line emerges in all these cases. These are women who made decisions under their own power, but couldn't cope in the aftermath when those choices made them feel terrible. Under other circumstances, this might lead a person to contemplate the gap between her actions, her desired outcome, and the actual result, and to recognize that this kind of miscalculation is normal, human, and an essential part of the trial and error process by which we eventually become better judges of what will make us happy. But consent culture increasingly doesn't leave um, room, leave the door open for that kind of nuance. There is no room within the framework for a desired choice to lead to regret or for a woman to say, I wanted this in the moment, even if things didn't work out as I'd hoped. Instead, women retroactively strip themselves of their agency. I didn't consent to feeling bad about this. Hence, I didn't consent to any of it. Um, tell me a bit more about how you felt about the Aziz Ansari case, which I think listeners will be familiar with. And if not, I'm, I, I will link to the relevant material. Sure. Gosh, I, it's funny how uh, I feel like every time I talk to anybody about anything sort of even tangentially related to me too, um, or sometimes not <laughs> tangentially related, I end up talking about Aziz Ansari. He's really living rent-free in my head at this point. Um, he, and, he and his terrible terrible date. Um, so I did, I don't know, I, I found it frustrating um, that this story became a story, became a public thing in a lot of ways. Um, and first and foremost, because it's such a great example of how there is no such thing as uh, a private conflict anymore, um, as, as you sort of processing things on your own or, you know, in a more intimate private framework with friends, um, that that if you've been wronged at this point, or you or if you if you feel bad, it means you've been wronged, um, and there has to be a public reckoning for the person who made you feel bad because it means that they must have objectively done something wrong. So, you know, I felt you know as as silly as this sounds, I felt bad for Aziz Ansari that you know this objectively embarrassing shitty thing that he went through, you know, where he behaved awkwardly and badly. And, you know, I'm sure he felt bad about it. Um, even, you know, even before it turned out that the woman felt that he, you know, really overstepped boundaries in this way. Um, you know, that this became public knowledge. I, I just cringe still thinking about this explicit narration of how bad and bumbling he was, you know, trying to give oral sex to this woman. And um, so, you know, the, the sort of violation of privacy involved in that story never sat well with me. And then objectively, um, you know, it, it's a difficult thing to talk about, but I don't think that he committed sexual assault. I don't really think that he did anything so wrong that it required this kind of adjudication. It was the kind of thing where had she felt so terrible about it, it should have been discussed afterwards. You know, they could have talked about it, but but to sort of drag it into the public realm, I thought that at that point, you know, the, the wrong being done was on her part, not his. 
I wonder how much of that is the easy availability of of Twitter in particular. Um, that um, I I mean I also share many personal things on Twitter, um, although I'm you know I I I don't share things that are um, I don't share interactions with romantic interactions with men. Mm-hmm. I mean, except for my very public ongoing flirtation with Rod Graham, um, but. <laughs> Um, but with men who I've actually met, you know, with whom I'm having a real life dating experience, I tend not to share that on Twitter unless it was truly, uh, truly and comically terrible. And I can retell it at a distance um, without the person's name and without them knowing. I haven't done that yet, but I reserve the right to do it uh, in a future. In future, It's one of the, it's got to be one of the perks of online dating. But this sort of feeling that Twitter is just that one second away and you can just go and click on the thing and share with the world immediately. Um, You remember that, I don't know if you noticed, but recently um, Elon Musk, uh, talking of people who've had many kind of very public sort of melt, emotional meltdowns on Twitter, um, was posting something and his girlfriend posted, hey, this is not who you are. We need to talk, etc. And I was so struck by the fact that this, that she posted this, uh, instead of talking to him, she tweeted at him. Yeah, I remember that. And um, God, that, that what a painful thing to see. Mm. It was It was very sad and upsetting to me. And I think it is, we have, um, I mean, there are many good things about Twitter and I'm quite, I'm actually kind of fond of it because all of my paid work has come through people I've met through Twitter. Um, I also worry about this kind of permeable boundary that we've created. So we feel as though on Twitter, first of all, we feel as though online we're having real relationships with people. Um, on Twitter or chatting on the Bumble app or whatever. But we're not really. We're kind of eating Doritos for dinner when we do that. That's my my sensation. Um, and on the other hand, there's this sense that Twitter is kind of an extension of your real and personal life. And so you can just air your your personal troubles on there and then it immediately becomes... If, if if you happen to be a person with traction or if the tweet for some unknown reason goes vi- viral, then it becomes a political and a socio-political issue rather than your specific relationship issue. Um, and it starts, it turns from this guy behaved badly on a date to this is what men are like and this is what women are like. Yes, that's very true. Um, you know, I think that I, I feel like I've talked about this with a lot of uh, people in different venues, but this tendency to but turn... not with me. No. So. <laughs> I was, was going to say this tendency. I, I'm just I'm aware that I'm probably repeating myself from some other podcast at this point, but this tendency to reduce individual people down to sort of avatars for an identity category um, where, you know, as you said, yeah, you know, a a guy is boorish or obnoxious or awkward on a date and suddenly he becomes 
this loathed proxy for all usually straight white men everywhere. You know, men are trash, and uh, and and suddenly, you know, everybody's part of this conversation. And I think that that's a huge thing. You know, this this sort of urge to flatten the conversation and make it tribal in this way um, ends up creating a lot of really ugly scenarios. The other thing, though, is that everybody is living so much more in public all the time. And I think that for younger people, especially, um, they haven't really learned the value of keeping some stuff private, especially when, if you are the first to take your grievance to Twitter and everybody does this now, it's, it's like this race to get out in front of the story. Like everyone is a celebrity trying to kind of massage their divorce story in the wake of the breakup. Um, if you're the first to get on Twitter and to, and to call out the person who hurt your feelings, you get to control that narrative. You get the wave of sympathetic attention and validation of, you know, how you deserved better. This shouldn't have happened to you. You know, total strangers will will pile on to this person who wronged you. And um, I think that it takes a lot of emotional maturity and self-restraint to not take the internet up on that opportunity. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think it also, um, I mean, that's part of, I, I think, a larger kind of shaming culture that we're seeing on the internet, which I absolutely hate, which is, um, you know, characterized by things like the Covington Catholic incident, where you're posting very short video links, sometimes of a person losing their rag or a, a person at a very bad moment and completely demonizing them. And one of my uh, one of my friends um, said that he he once um, was coming out of a driving out of a parking lot, and two women were blocking his exit in their car, and he and he was he rolled down his window and he was shouting and swearing at them and and shouting obscenities, and then he kind of made as if he was going to back into their car as mm-hmm. if he was going to like ram them. He didn't, but he just like revved a little bit mm-hmm. and um and he said that if if um if you know twitter had been around back then um one of the and if one of those women had taken out a cell phone and filmed him that could have been just the end of his life the end of his career as a teacher um and it 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 could have been just a uh, a horrifying experience for him and what people who watched the video would not have known is that as he was um driving out of that sorry I'm, I'm getting a little choked up telling the story but um as he was driving out of that that parking lot he had just heard the news that his five-year-old son was in a had been in an accident was in a coma and he was rushing to intensive care wow so this kind of, um, I mean, I think this is, that that whole shaming culture is something that I think is probably the worst aspect of social media and the internet. And we can see this uh, a kind of, of sloshing over into, into this domain of dating as well. Um, but it's not unique to that. I'm sorry, I just wanted to put that um, out there. But I think part of it is also that it really 
removes the gray areas from um, from behavior. And I felt, I actually felt slightly differently about the Aziz Ansari thing than most people felt, um, which is that I agree that there was a kind of breach of a breach of of privacy that went on there of trust, um, and also that um, he's he clearly didn't do anything that was criminally wrong, but. I felt that because it became this political cause, most people who are more anti-woke, um, like me, who are more in that kind of anti-SDW side of things, um, were championing him in such an enthusiastic way that I felt that it, they lost sight of the fact that he behaved pretty badly on this date. I mean, if he, if he behaved in the way that um, he supposedly did according to the story. Um, and it was no longer so much about him for me, but about the fact that they were kind of justifying this behavior. Um, and it was because the only two options seemed to be he must go to prison or he's a really great upstanding guy and this is a perfectly nice, great way to behave in a date. Um, and that really seemed to, that annoyed me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, certainly this did not sound to me like a good date. Um, it's the kind of thing that, uh, had it happened to me when I was still, you know, younger and dating men who were not my husband. Um, I think, you know, and I, I have been in situations where a guy was sort of, you know, expecting certain things to happen, um, with maybe being pushy about certain things happening. And, you know, that's a situation in which had it been me, I would have, you know, left, um, and probably just never talked to him again. Uh, you know, it would have been a, a sort of a useful lesson in, you know, setting a boundary, sticking to it, severing a relationship with somebody, you know, who clearly wanted different things. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's hard though, because there's, it's hard to parse when this situation um, flipped from a sympathetic scenario for the girl to a sympathetic scenario for him, because by the time we find out about it, it's public. It's all wrapped up in the fact that it's public. Um, and it's hard to then talk about that, you know, where in a, an ideal world, we would not even know about this. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know about it to even be discussing whether it was right or wrong. Yeah, I think it's um, there's a there's a much more extreme example which which um, you cite in one of your articles. I think it's from the Radio Lab um, interview, and I will put a link to that interview in the show notes. Um, and I was listening to that before just before we came on air, um, and it's a a student who was accusing another student of. Um, sexual assault under the Title IX. Um, and I know this is a kind of extreme story, but it really, um, it brought up a lot of, of things for me. I think it encapsulated many things. Um, and she says that she she was in the guy's uh, dorm room and she felt, um, uh, um, she, felt af she felt afraid of him. 
Um, and so she um, gave him a blowjob because she felt that was the only thing that she could do to manage to get safely out of his room again. Um, I think I'm going to see whether I can find the actual description. It was one of uh, Hannah. She she was very fussy about how her name was pronounced, but I can't do it. Hannah Stotland, one of her clients. So she advises young men who've been accused of um, sexual yes, harassment. Yes, I do remember this one. Okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, so the thing is that on the one hand, I... Um, I do remember situations when I was when I was a teenager in which I guess I I could um I I kind of it wasn't that I was being coerced but I was sort of afraid that I might be coerced and I preferred to frame it in my own mind as 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 wanting the sex so I preferred to kind of Go, go immediately into the enthusiastic um, role because I didn't want to feel like a victim. Um, and I actually had a, a friend of mine uh, back then in those days when we were teenagers who uh, um, almost certainly she was raped, but she really insisted this wasn't rape. And I think the thing was she did not want the trauma afterwards of feeling like a victim. Um, so it's it's kind of extraordinary to me. It's slightly extraordinary to me that people are now almost seeking a, a victim status, that they prefer to think rather than just, I had sex that I regretted with some asshole that I probably shouldn't, whom I probably shouldn't have had sex with, which surely we have all done, that they actually prefer to feel that they had been assaulted or or violated. And that seems like just psychologically such a bad move. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot going on there. You know, for one thing, even as we sort of got away from the idea that it was morally wrong for a woman to have and enjoy sex, you know, sort of outside the bounds of marriage, um, you know, to even to have casual sex and enjoy it, it's... There was never this acceptance. We never got. We never got so far as to being okay with the logical implications of that when it's not enjoyable. You know, once you get into this realm where you're having casual sex, you know, there's a, you you lose a little control there. You know, there's no guarantee that it's going, or there's even less of a guarantee than if you're having you know sexual intercourse in the the confines of like a committed relationship with somebody you know very well. Um, there's no guarantee that it's going to go the way you want it to, that it's going to be fun. And this isn't this isn't even about consensual or non-consensual. It's not about assault. It's not about rape. It's just, this wasn't good. It wasn't fun. You know, I felt awkward or uncomfortable. Um, you know, we ended up doing things that I didn't really want to do. But in the moment, I didn't feel like making things awkward by saying no. And these are all calculations that, you know, that women and men make in the midst of an intimate moment um, and that go with the territory of having sex. But we never really came around to the idea that women could have this experience 
and that it would be okay afterward. You know, there was still this idea that like, if you had sex and it was bad or not enjoyable or, you know, left you feeling icky, then it meant that something bad had been done to you. It was not possible. You know, we were not comfortable enough with the idea of women as like fully free and, you know, autonomous and having their own agency that you could make a choice and it would turn out to be a bad choice and you would feel regret and you would have to reckon with that. And um, I think that, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to talk about to say, you know, that we need to stop seeing a regretted experience as inherently traumatic. Um, but you know, it is so, there's such a rush to kind of classify things in that way. Um, and once you have that, this idea that, you know, if this happened, then it's gonna, it's gonna break you, you're damaged, um, in a way that is going to affect you for the rest of your life, taking responsibility and saying, you know, well, wait, I chose this, you know, and I feel bad about it, but I'm going to learn what I can and move through it and, and act differently the next time. Again, like that takes a lot of, um, you have to, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable and it's so much easier. Uh, and, and I think, you know, attractive in certain ways to flee into this idea of having been victimized instead, because then you don't have to do any of the uncomfortable stuff. You don't have to sit there and reckon with your choices or think about how you'll, how you would do things differently, because, which means, of course, that you have to dwell in this moment where you made a bad decision and, and kind of sit with it and own it. Um, if you can get away from that, I think that a lot of people find that very irresistible to say, no, you know, this was not, this was not my choice. This was done to me and it was wrong and I did nothing wrong. Um, and you know, that's, it's not hard to understand why a lot of college age women, especially who are inexperienced, um, you know, where this emotional pain goes with the territory of, of what they're trying to do. Um, you know, the space they're trying to navigate, would just choose to say that, no, you know, I don't bear responsibility for this. Yeah, I, I mean, I, um, looking back on my experiences when I was younger, I think that there, there's kind of, I've, I have two conflicting feelings about um, the sort of safety aspect and the safety culture, I guess. And one is that I distinctly remember as a teenager, and I'm not sure how true this still is, um, but I do remember that it was impossible to be out in public without constant harassment and really felt like harassment. So, you know, I um, if I went to the park, there would be people, people would follow me. Um, and I wasn't physically afraid. This was in a completely public setting, but it was, it was at the very least annoying I would sit down on, on a bench to read and, and a guy would always come and sit down really close to me, putting his um, hand around the, the, on the back of the bench, kind of like around where I was sitting and would lean right in and look at the book over my shoulder. That happened so many times. And going on long train rides was also a nightmare because um, guys, guys would come and hover or they would sit next to me. And I found it 
And I'm talking when I was between, I guess, ages 13 and 18, 19 um, in particular. And I re- and I remember also it just finding it very hard to assertively say no, um, feeling very awkward, not knowing how to politely extricate myself from the situation. Um, and I think that that is a really common experience at that age, um, that assertiveness, being able to say no to people and not feel awkward, that's something that's always difficult. It remains difficult even as an adult, but when you're at that age, it's a faculty that is very, very underdeveloped. And sorry, I remember it being just a, um, a very stressful experience. And um, I, I certainly, um, friends of mine have certainly experienced that recently, at least in India, um, when I was living in Pune, um, a young woman, an acquaintance of mine who is a young, beautiful blonde woman of 25, arrived and she had just spent two weeks in Delhi, her first uh, arrival in India. And um, she was really like a person who has, had been in a war zone. Uh, she had PTSD, and that's the only way that I can... I don't mean that as a formal diagnosis, I'm sorry, but that that's how it felt to me when I encountered her in Pune. And it took a while for me to convince her that in Pune you can actually walk around in the street and you'll probably be okay, because um, Delhi was just a constant, constant experience of um, of being harassed, of being followed, including kind of at night when it when she wasn't sure whether it was safe or not, where it felt vaguely threatening, of being kind of stared at from a really close distance, um, of having all kinds of rude things said to her, of having her hair of being grabbed and, and touched and 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 also one guy who was clearly rubbing himself through his trousers as he was um, watching her from across the bus. Ah, oh, charming. <laughs> yeah, so I I mean, I feel that there is, I think, um, I certainly grew up with this sense that it, it um, you do face a, a kind of potential world of a lot of harassment. Um, I, of course, if I go to Delhi, nothing happens whatsoever, but I'm 51. I'm completely invisible, sexually invisible to men when I'm in pub, out in public. And... Um, uh, you know, um, young Indian men uh, see me as as being Didi. You know, I'm the old, I'm the mother, um, and oh. like the older sister, mother, aunt. Now, thing. were you just you were describing this experience growing up? This was not in the U.S. It was in. Uh, no, this was well. First, uh, well, I I grew up initially in Pakistan, um, but most of this happened actually after I came to the U.K. Oh, okay. This was in London. Interesting. Um, you know, I don't know if uh, maybe I just wasn't that cute uh, as a teenager, but um, I never experienced that kind of attention from men. Um, you know, and I'm not sure if it's just because of sort of where I was growing up in, you know, this small town in the Northeast where, I mean, honestly, had, um, you know, had anybody tried to harass me, you know, 
would have known would have known who he was and where he lived and probably his parents and you know it's uh, just a, a different thing obviously when you're when you're being raised in a town of about two thousand people, um, but you know I think that yeah that that scenario of of just feeling inundated um, once I moved to New York City in my early twenties I I did you know experience a lot of street harassment walking down the street I lived in Harlem where um, there was sort of more of a culture of uh, yelling at women in the street. And, um, you know, it, it can be, I don't know. I, I, I am one of these people who has mixed feelings about cat calling because it can be incredibly frustrating, um, you know, intrusive, intimidating, uh, gross, you know, it can basically ruin your day if it happens, you know, in certain ways or at a moment where you just don't want to be interacted with. Um, you know, I've also had, you know, men comment things to me on the street that ended up being very flattering, you know, and it's obviously, uh, I think it varies from person to person from scenario to scenario. Um, you know, how that attention can feel at any given moment. But, um, I also recognize that I was very, very lucky to be raised by, um, um, you know, both, both my parents, but my mom especially was a fierce, you know, hardcore second wave feminist. And she taught me from an early age to be assertive. It was one of the most important things I learned, um, to be assertive, to be resilient, to be self-sufficient. And after, um, you know, learning that stuff as a young teenager, once I was out on my own and, uh, you know, traveling, going places, you know, I was able to navigate the world by myself and feel very comfortable about it because I felt that if I was approached, um, I would have no trouble handling myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I lived in Argentina for many years and in Buenos Aires, there is this uh, culture of street catcalling. Um, but I think that it it really, to me at least, um, I know some people really, really hate it. Um, to me at least, I think that it depends entirely on how it's done. So I think that being, being kind of complimented on the street by somebody is one thing. Um, have it when it's really, really coarse and lewd, even if it's a compliment, then it also disturbs me. Um, and of course, if it's a dodgy neighborhood or it's late at night, then I then it starts to feel threatening to me mm-hmm. or potentially threatening, or at least it, it kind of worries me. Um, so I think that I, I, I feel as though in itself, I don't think that catcalling is necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think it entirely depends on what type of catcalling it is. That it can feel very intrusive and very th- and, and even kind of menacing. And it can also feel just, uh, it's just kind of sweet or, or ignorable. Um, but I do, um, I... It, it really, I mean, reading the story about the woman who felt that she had no choice but to give this guy a blowjob, it's extraordinary, I think, the kind of, there, there's a really fine line between caution and fear. So it's important to be cautious and to protect yourself and keep your wits about you and 
um, be careful about the situations that you get into. And I think that, um, and of course, in some situations, however assertive you are, it won't help you. If you're really with someone who is, uh, if you really find yourself alone with uh, someone who is a sadist, then you could get assaulted or raped, no matter what you say to them and how you behave. Oh, of course. Um, so, but... I think there are many, many situations in which assertiveness works. Um, and uh, when I say this, I, I don't want it to sound like victim blaming, because um, if I say, well, did you tr try being assertive if you're in that situation? I, I don't mean to imply that if you try and it fails, it's your fault, or even if you don't try and it uh, um it's your fault because it's quite difficult. It's quite a difficult thing to do. It's, it can be quite difficult to be assertive, but it's a really useful tool to train up and have. And I recently, when I was, I was staying at a Dharamsala and um, this guy who was working for the Dharamsala, the hostel, I was staying at a, like a, a Parsi hostel uh, in Bombay. And, um, the the guy was was um, was always trying to sidle up close to me and stuff. And at one point, I opened the shower and I was wearing just my um, uh, long night. I was wearing a long nighty, mm -hmm. and um, um, and he was standing like right in the entrance, kind of blocking my way. And he was quite a big guy, so I can imagine that I could have panicked at that moment. And also, if he'd really been a violent and horrible guy, it wouldn't have mattered what I'd done. But I didn't panic. I just said to him, get back, shoo, shoo. <laughs> and I made this <laughs> gesture like I was getting rid of a fly. And surprisingly, he just kind of took a step back and then I walked past him. <laughs> um, it was, and I was sort of startled by the fact that that worked. Yeah, you know, I think that the thing is that it, it often does. Um, you know, you have somebody who is sort of consciously pushing a boundary, but will step back if the boundary is reinforced. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I really think that it's important to teach young women to be assertive. And, you know, it's, it's one of these things where it's true. It is hard. It is, it is hard to assert yourself in a situation where you feel pressured. Um, but that's true, not just of sexual situations. Um, you know, being pressured to do things you don't want to do is a part of life. And I really, uh, you know, I, I've always, maybe, maybe to the extent of being too harsh about it, but I've always come down on the side of, you know, it's hard is not an excuse. You have to still do it. It's, it's part of learning to be a self-possessed and mature and fully functional adult, um, especially if you want to be in situations like, you know, for instance, this girl and uh, um, the, the blowjob story. I remember, I feel like it was, it was an interesting scenario because she actually took a lot of initiative. I think that she, um, you know, that, that she took this guy's clothes off and took her own clothes off and went down on him. That's what my memory is. I'll have to refresh myself um, on the, the details because I may be conflating this with a different story. But it was one of these things where it wasn't really credible that she was so afraid that 
you know, that she took that she that she took all of this initiative to perform a sex act out of fear um, when, you know, she could have also left. Um, and the, you know, the sense that in the moment you risk disappointing the guy. And so, and that's, and that's, you know, an unbearable situation. I think that that's something that needs to be pushed back against, um, especially because, you know, at this point there is a lot of this sort of rhetoric surrounding power as the primary framework through which relationships happen, sort of so, uh, saturated into the way we talk about dating and we talk about sex. Um, and one of the things in that NPR story um, that I found disturbing was the insinuation that because men historically uh, have, you know, held the position of oppressor over women. You know, we've, we've lived through a thousand years of patriarchy that any time a man and a woman come together in a heterosexual dating scenario or where casual sex might be happening, uh, that the woman is automatically under threat and at a disadvantage because of the weight of all of this history of oppression that preceded it, you know, and it's not about the two of them relating as individuals. It's about what they each represent from their given identity categories. Um, once you start introducing that into interpersonal relationships, it becomes very toxic. You can't really get to a healthy place from there. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is a problem with social justice, leftism in, ge in general, that you are use a lot of people, obviously not everybody um, who subscribes to this worldview, but um, too often people are using a tool which is meant for statistical analysis um, and are using it to just prejudge an individual interaction. Um, and that, that, that seems to be very much what's happening here. And there's this kind of weird idea that power is just this static thing, which you either have or you don't have. And it's just a kind of framework and everybody is slotted into that, their place in the framework. And that's it from birth until death. You have the power that a woman of of your ethnic origin has uh, um, and that that man has the power that a straight white man has, etc. Um, and there's just no sense that power, um, I mean, there is a basic imbalance between men and women in physical strength, um, in upper body strength. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but there's also when we're talking about more subtle forms of power, those can shift all the time and they're absolutely situation dependent. Um, you know, if the you're a straight white man who from a nice background who went to um, Eton and Cambridge um, and you've fallen on bad luck and your landlady is a disabled black um first-generation immigrant um, who is uh, a queer, transgender, and I don't know what. There's a lot going on with this woman. <laughs> we can add some other categories. But, she, but um, you're, you're renting a room in her house, and you're dependent on that, and if she throws you out, you're going to be homeless. So who has the power in that situation? Clearly, she has the power. 
Um, I mean, I'm giving a slightly ridiculous example, but um, in real life, power is is constantly shifting. And in real relationships, so not just these kind of dating and uh, brief brief uh, sexual encounters, um, power dynamics shift all the time, which is why when a relationship starts, I'm not really worried about who is more in love with who or who needs more who, because my experience is that that tends to shift over time and often in unpredictable ways. Because uh, when you're talking about emotional needs, that's a, a very, those are very shifting sands. And I got, I got some flack for this, but I also think that in a relationship between people of where there is a large age gap, generally the younger person is the one with more power in that relationship because the younger person just has more romantic and sexual choices and opportunities potentially. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, I, I don't, I don't, disagree with it. I think that it's not necessarily like a universal rule. No, of, no, no, but, absolutely not. But if 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 I had to guess one way or the other, that's the way that I would lay my bets. Yes. Well, a thing that's often ignored um, in these conversations is, you know, we talk about usually power as it relates to um, identity and, you know, it's like race, religion, gender, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Occasionally, class will enter will enter into it, although rarely, honestly. Um, but nobody ever talks about the inherent power of being, you know, a young, attractive woman. Usually, I mean, and that's that's not nothing. Mm. Well, I I I kind of feel that they talk about that in a sense too much, and they don't acknowledge that being a young, attractive man also gives you power, and not power in the sense that. You can go around raping people. I mean, power in the sense that um, women also feel a longing and suffer from rejection and those kinds of things. So I think that there has been, in the kind of Me Too backlash, um, there's been too much emphasis on this idea of the man beautiful, manipulative woman and the innocent man who is going to suffer all of the emotional fallout if things don't go well romantically. Um, and that's also a, a cliche. Um, yeah, yes, <laughs> I that's, guess. That's, that's definitely a tired trope in and of itself. Mm, mm, yeah. I um, Talking of men, um, you wrote an article about the cool guy, the kind of a uh, feminist guy, and um, you say that you think that there is there's a sort of misunderstanding of what men are doing when they're doing this very performative kind of. I I, I lose I lose track of how many waves of feminism we're on now, um, whether it's third, fourth, or whatever wave. I think we're still um, in the third. I think we're still in the right. third right now. <laughs> I'm I'm still with Mary Wollstonecraft, so and my feminism is. 1789. Um, a very good year. <laughs> ex an excellent year. And I will put her book in the show notes because everybody should read it, um, A Vindication of the Rights of Women. But um, you say that there is this misunderstanding that people think that when men are doing this very performative um, third wave, quote unquote, feminism, which is 
just trashing other men, saying my trash demographic. Um, and um, people think that they are doing this to try to get into women's knickers. But in fact, it's, it's rather different. It's, their motivations are a bit different from that. Could you say more about that? Oh, you know, I mean, when these, these men do this, I think that it's, I mean, it's very self-aggrandizing. Um, I think that it's often self-protective in certain cases. Uh, you know, these, these guys fear being called out, um, you know, and so they, they sort of call themselves out first or they, or they talk about how men are trash, but in, in doing so, they sort of subtly categorize themselves outside of that. Like, like, look at all these trashy men of whom I am not, in fact, a part. I'm different. I'm, you know, better because I'm willing to talk about how men are such trash. Um, it is, it is very performative. It's, I mean, I think, I guess, you know, probably a form of, of moral grandstanding. Um, and it's really mostly about raising one's own profile. I mean, the thing about these guys is that like, it's, it's not, sexy. Um, what they're doing is not sexy. And uh, women don't really find it attractive. So something else is clearly going on there. And um, the thing about these these guys doing this performative feminist thing um, that really bothers me is that I think that they present the idea of being a feminist man as though it's like, this is what it has to look like. And it's pathetic, you know, it's pathetic. It's, it's a turnoff. I mean, you know, most, most men, just ordinary men see this and think it's ridiculous. Um, they, they usually see it as a play for female attention, but you know, regardless it's, it's not appealing and it just kind of creates this, uh, this sense of false, sense that this is what it requires of you you know if you want to be a good guy if you want to be a good feminist that you have to sit there flagellating yourself for your privilege day in and day out um and it's you know it's so much less complicated than that it takes nowhere near that much work it does not have to be painful uh it doesn't have to be difficult to be like a good person um and i mean this is a, a wider issue in a lot of I think the way that that the sort of discourse surrounding social justice has become an elite thing where it's about knowing the right vocabulary and you know saying all of the right things and sort of peacocking in this particular way um you know it it just serves to create the idea that that it's very difficult and takes a lot of work and education and reading certain books and you know taking workshops and so on to be a decent person when it's not actually true. It's not that complicated. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be a very feminist act to just clean the hob after you have cooked, for example. Yes. Load the dishwasher. <laughs> yeah. Put the toilet seat down. Um, you know, but yeah, things, the, the, the things that make a man a, a good feminist ally are, you know, treating women with respect, you know, helping to advance them, um, you know, in, in professional circles where that's possible and appropriate um, and not making their lives hard if you live with one. You know, if you live with a woman at home by not, you know, kind of like shunting her into like, don't make her do every menial job. 
Um, don't, yeah. make, don't make her act like your mom. Yeah, yeah. That's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, and taking no for an answer. And I mean, I'm not talking about rape situations here, but I think that certainly the culture in Argentina is that is that if the woman says no to being asked on, on a date or to going back to your place for quote-unquote coffee, then you just keep asking. Um, and that could, I find that can be, get very irritating very quickly. Yes, that definitely is true. Um, I think, though, that, I mean, there there's some really, I want to just return to the safety issue for a moment because um, I think that there are some really uh, contradictory things happening. One is that, I mean, I think that there's a lot, there's a kind of perception in people's minds that it has become more dangerous for women. And the opposite has got to be true, at least in the West. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that, um, the exaggeration of of danger can be very harmful. And I do remember when, when I was a teenager and when I was going to university, I heard the statistic that one in four women were raped at university. And... I since think there's probably no basis to that statistic. Um, you know, I mean, there there is a replication crisis in in social psych, social um, sciences for a reason. Mm-hmm. So there's probably no basis to the statistic. But also, it just I I I was really really unduly afraid. Um, during my college years. So for example, I would never, I didn't want to walk or cycle home alone. And this was in Cambridge. Um, And now I think it's so unlikely that some stranger would have leapt out of the bushes and raped me. But I had a really profound fear that this was going to happen. And I was always making my male friends walk home with me and things like that. When I was in the States, um, there was uh, people are, are so fearful that they're doing things like this woman giving the blowjob to the guy. And on the other hand, people would say, well, when you're dating a man, I don't know if this is still the case. Actually, I need to ask whether this is still the case. You need to get him to pick you up from your home in his car for your first date, which I, I thought was a ridiculously dangerous thing to do if you don't know the guy at all. Um, you're telling him where you live. He's arriving at your home address and you're getting into a car with a stranger. Um, So there's this really odd kind of misperception of what situations require normal forms of caution and what situations don't. And this kind of idea that smaller forms of caution are not useful or even kind of victim-blaming. Yes, you know, so the that statistic about one in four women being raped in college, um, you know, that got so much attention and, and even ended up becoming the basis for um, the you know 2011 Dear Colleague letter from the Obama administration that that caused these huge sort of draconian changes to how uh, sexual assault is adjudicated on college campuses, and uh, it's based on a study that was faulty in a million different ways, and it's one of these things where even if you just kind of think about it, it you know, sensibly for a second, you realize, you know, that 
college women are not the at-risk population for rape. It's it's far more likely, um, you know, that women who are, you know, sex workers who are, um, you know, who live in poverty. There's a, there's a huge class element to it. Um, you know, privileged comparatively women who are attending four-year universities are not as likely to be raped. And um, rape is not even like, I mean, you would think that it's the most prevalent crime that, you know, there's this huge likelihood that you're going to experience this as compared with other, um, other violent crimes, but it's actually not. It's, I, I looked into the statistics on this uh, at one point and it's, um, you know, it happens about as frequently or, or, or less so actually than things like, um, you know, ordinary physical assaults, like fights, um, you know, certain types of, uh, you know, burglaries. It's just, it's not as common, but it, it seizes the imagination in a way that enables this sort of narrative. And of course, you know, because of who, you know, who writes the news, who makes the news, um, who decides what stories get told in the sort of public sphere, uh, the college thing, this college women, you know, under constant threat narrative, ended up taking hold and becoming the thing that everyone's talking about. And even then, you know, the, the likelihood is not that you're going to be raped by some stranger who jumps out of the bushes. It's far more likely if you're going to be, if you're going to be raped, you know, that it's going to be by somebody, you know, um, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's hardly ever a stranger, but the, yeah, the notion that it's dangerous, um, you know, is, is very, at this point, very overblown. And, it's funny because you see women sort of pushing that idea. It's, it's very attractive to them. And there are these big Twitter threads where, you know, a woman will say like, Oh, women, you know, what would you do if all men on earth disappeared for 24 hours? And all of these women are like, I would finally go running outside at night. Like I would walk on the beach, you know, they, they talk as though they are, like ensconced inside their homes 24 seven, just like it quivering, like little piles of jello for fear that if they leave the house, they might encounter a man in which case that's a dangerous scenario and it's intolerable. Mm. I wouldn't go running at night though. I mean, I think parks at night are to be avoided. It depends on where you are. It's a general rule. I guess. I mean, you know. I guess a a floodlit park in kind of floodlit square in New York or something would be very different from going out in the heath. A, you know, a, yeah, so if, I mean, in the heath, is somebody else going to be out there or are you just going to encounter a lot of rabbits? <laughs> oh, in Scotland, I mean, I would walk on my own um, at, at any hour because um, in order to rape somebody, you would have to first freeze your bollocks off waiting until somebody actually came by. Right. I mean, it um, is a funny notion, the idea that, you know, your average rapist is going to go out to like a secluded country road and wait there in the hopes that a woman jogs by um it's highly impractical it is a little bit i mean i did feel um when i was staying down in oroville and that is a very is a kind of quite remote place and in india there's no street lighting it's pitch black from about 6 30 p.m onwards and it is um it is very difficult to overcome that feeling 
that I shouldn't be walking and I shouldn't be cycling in the absolute pitch black. Um, and you do feel vulnerable and kind of powerless. Um, I did feel like if I encountered a guy or even worse, more than one guy, and they had bad intentions, I feel like there's nothing I could do. Um, there's nobody to hear me. And um, I know that I can't adequately fight back in that kind of situation, despite having had self-defense training, because I've been in that kind of situation. And it's um, trivially easy to be overpowered. So I think that it's, um, it's, it's hard to get completely rid of that fear. And it's a personal calculation that you need to make. But probably the fear is mostly unfounded. It's just that, that fear is very atavistic. Um, but when you are really in a lonely place, the likelihood of just encountering anybody uh, is small. And if you encounter someone, the likelihood that person is going to be a malefactor is also small. So it's just a risk that you have to take in life. Yeah, that's very true. And I mean, I think the thing is that, you know, we talk a lot about this as, a, as it impacts women, but, um, you know, the the people who are the most likely to be victims of violent crimes are actually men. You know, they, they are the perpetrators and they are the victims, by and large, of violent crime. And um, these, the fear, you know, of being victimized uh, when you're alone and vulnerable is something that I think actually all human beings experience, you know, to, to be in the dark, to be alone, to know that, you know, if, if something happens, nobody will hear you scream. Um, that that's a very human thing. And, you know, even though women are physically often, you know, more, more vulnerable and we have to worry about rape where a guy doesn't, um, you know, that doesn't mean that these are not in many ways universal human experiences that we all have to cope with. Mm, yeah. Um, so what do you think of this notion of, of um, the idea of explicit verbal consent? It's a nice idea. Um, I mean, you know, it's... when I When I think about you know, what, what do you hope to accomplish with this? Um, you know, on the one hand, if you're in a sexual scenario with somebody and you're not sure, you're genuinely unsure if they like what you're doing, um, you know, asking for explicit verbal consent is a great thing. The thing that sort of frustrates me is that people seem to imagine that consent if you if if it's asked for and if it's given it means that nothing's ever going to happen that somebody's uncomfortable with um and that's really uh, you know it's it's iffy um especially when you're talking about people who are younger who are more inexperienced who not only don't know what the other person wants but don't really know what they want i mean you think about all of the the damage that human beings inflict on each other you know not out of malice but just because in intimate scenarios, they don't know what they want, you know, physically or emotionally. Um, people break each other's hearts unintentionally all the time because they're insecure or unsure, you know. And, and the only way that you become 
a, a better person and a fulfilled person is, you know, by having those missteps. So, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, explicit verbal consent, it's, you know, it's, it's a nice idea. I think that there are a lot of scenarios in which it's probably not necessary and other scenarios in which getting it isn't going to mitigate the, the risks that people think it will. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I don't know that it, I don't know that it solves the issue of sex being kind of fraught, kind of unpredictable. Uh, I think mm. that a lot of people are trying to, they sort of see it as a magic bullet. Like, you know, we'll, we'll institute these sort of rigorous rules surrounding asking for and receiving consent and then nobody will ever get emotionally hurt again and that's not going to happen yeah i mean i i do think that it some of the attitudes that i remember being around when i was growing up have been it's it's been helpful for for counteracting some of the old attitudes for example i i remember very clearly that the feeling was um, if you had gone to the guy's room um, and you were kissing or, and lying down the bed, then you had Im implicitly consented to having sex with a person and you had kind of consented to whatever happened after that. And there were many jokes about this um, and there was a lot of kind of talk about how um, men would be in extreme pain if they got sexually aroused and then were not able to have an orgasm with another person. Oh, right, blue this balls. Whole blue balls <laughs> which was just absurd. I don't know why it didn't occur to me that, you know, most men have a one or two hands. Um, <laughs> so, um, it's not like a guy who is single is just going to kind of um, suddenly... So, um, spontaneously combust in the middle of the street. Um, that would be interesting and very messy. Spectacular to see. Spectacular, yeah, but... <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> there have been no cases <laughs> that I know of of that happening. Um, and I, um, but I remember it being kind of almost like a sort of responsibility you had to the man because yeah, he would yeah. be, in extreme, he would be in extreme physical pain if you didn't kind of continue things to their conclusion. And the conclusion was his orgasm. So I remember that that kind of attitude and this feeling that you might not enjoy some parts of the sex and some things that would be done, but it was kind of, it was a package deal. Mm -hmm. um, and there were many jokes, for example, about you needed to position yourself really carefully when you're having sex if you didn't want to have anal sex, because if at any moment you had your back to the man, he could just stick it in there. Um, so I did, I, not, I did not learn that rule. Um, um, fortunately, I, I, I never had to learn that rule. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that nobody ever, you know, tried to do that to me by surprise. Um, no, but, this never happened to me in real life. But this was the kind of the talk and the sort of feeling and the kind of information that was around when I was a teenager. Um, you know, I wonder how much of that has to do with with just kind of the way that teenagers talk about sex. I think about, you know, some maybe, of the, the jokes, yeah, maybe the jokes that um, people would make when I was, you know, in like high school and college about all of these sex acts like, um, 
Oh, don't drop the soap. Well, yeah, there was like, there was like the Houdini where, um, or no, the, um, sorry, I'm gonna, this, this is absolutely repulsive. I don't know if you even want, <laughs> I, don't know if you even, I don't know if you even want this on your podcast, but um, the, the, the joke that um, somebody, uh, this, somebody invented this, they were like, oh, it's a real thing. It's the Siegfried and Roy, you know, and you, um, you have sex with a girl in front of a window from behind. And, um, you know, at an opportune moment, you pull out and then your buddy quietly comes out of the closet and takes your place and you go outside and wave at her through the window. And um, people would talk about this. Yeah. And I I was like, no one has ever done this. This occurred to me maybe last year, you know, like 15 years later. I was like, nobody ever did that. That was just, you know, people being gross and talking about something. Yeah, wanting to shock. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, also, that's also a thing, I think. Um, and I think that, I mean, one thing that does complicate this or certainly complicates it for me and I think for a lot of women is that um, there is... I do feel kind of disproportionately upset and disturbed um, if if something non-consensual sexual happens. So, for example, somebody like grabs my boob or something like that. And it's odd because I haven't been really injured in any way. And even if it's not a dangerous situation, this hasn't happened for years, as I said. I'm in my 50s now, so I'm like... The one good thing about getting older is I'm completely relaxed because I think the likelihood that anybody will rape me is now just vanishingly small. Um, and nevertheless, I'm a very risk-averse person, so I don't, I'm not um, cavalier um, but about situations. But nevertheless, this happened to me a few times when I was younger that people would like, I was at a salsa dance or something and some guy would come up and grab my boobs. And... I just felt, or a, cu- a couple of times people rubbed up against me with their erections on the tube and places like that. And it's, I wish that I could feel more blasé about that because nothing really actually happened. I wasn't in any way physically hurt. I wasn't in any kind of danger. Um, they didn't take anything away from me. But the ick feeling was so strong. Um, And after this happened to me at a salsa club, I didn't dance salsa for probably a decade after that. Yeah, I know. So, um, and I, I, I do think that is really inbuilt. So there, there's always going to be a, an, in addition to rational fears that, you know, you should be cautious when you're around, if you're uh, in a vulnerable situation with a man you don't know or don't trust, um, there's also this extra level of kind of, you do not want that ick. And it's a really, really strong, at least for me, it's a very strong sensation and feeling. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I, um, when I lived in New York City, um, had had the same experience of uh, you know men who would kind of rub up against you on the subway, um, and it was it was gross. Uh, but it's interesting, you know. It didn't. It certainly didn't stop me from taking the subway. Um, mm. The 
the second time, the first time it happened to me, I was like, is this happening? What is going on? This, no, it can't, it cannot be that. He's just got, (laughs) he's got a hammer in his pocket or something. And, you know, this is all just a terrible misunderstanding. Um, The second time it happened, I um, turned around and shoved him and yelled, don't rub your penis on me, which was, you know, fantastic. Um, You know, he was very embarrassed. But, um, you know, I guess it, it, it must really vary and uh, it may just be, you know, a question of how we're sort of each individually wired. None of, none of these incidents, and I've had a few as I think, you know, most women have, especially ones who've ever lived in a, a populous place where there's a lot of sort of incidental contact, you know, between strangers. Um, it, it's never it's never bothered me. And the thing that I remember most is, um, you know, maybe my first month living in New York, I was walking through um, Midtown with some friends. Um, and as we crossed paths with a group of young men, one of these guys in passing, um, he must have practiced this move because he, he did it very effectively. He reached behind him and just grabbed a handful of my ass as I passed by him. And I turned around and I screamed, you know, like, fuck you, buddy. Like, don't ever touch me. And the thing that I remember about this is that the guy that I was walking with told me I should stop making a scene because I was embarrassing him. And that made me angry. You know, mm, that's, mm. that's the thing that I remember is that rage mm. that this guy, you know, wanted me to stop, you know, embarrassing him by being angry that somebody had just grabbed a handful of my butt without consent. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I just want to come back to the assertiveness thing for a moment because I think it's important. I think that if you are in a situation with somebody who is genuinely malevolent, um, then I don't think that meekness and compliance is necessarily going to prevent them from hurting you. Um, so I, my personal feeling is that in, uh, uh, um, in those kinds of situations, it's probably better to be assertive. Yes, I mean, I guess, I suppose if, you're, if you happen to encounter somebody genuinely malevolent... There's well, really no, you know, there's no way out of that one way or another. Um, mm, mm. You know, the, the, there are a certain, a certain proportion, what is it, like 1% of the population are actual psychopaths, like clinically diagnosable. So, yes, although apparently it's something like four times that among CEOs. So yeah. be careful. Isn't that funny? <laughs> you know, it just goes to show it's like, you know, if you have, it's basically, you know, a, a personality disorder um, that in combination with the right characteristics, this can be a great thing for your life or, you know, it can turn you into Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, it really just depends on the individual person. I think that the the work thing um, so this this kind of feeling that you shouldn't be asking people in your work out, I do understand the reasons for that because I think that if you're working very closely together with someone, then it's really awkward to have said no to them on a date. If, if you know, there's no avoiding, if it's the 
two of you in an office or something. Well, not in an office anymore. (laughs) I hope we never go back to offices after this COVID thing. Zoom Um, flirting, though, is that a thing? Um, well, I guess, um, but yeah, I can see how it would be very awkward if you are unable to avoid the person. And so I think in those situations, you have to be extra, extra careful. But on the other hand, I feel as though those are the situations in which a lot of people meet their life partners. Um, so there's a, an opportunity cost there as well. But it seems to have gone way beyond that at the moment. And it's people who don't really even have any kind of direct power over you or uh, who you have to work with closely all the time um, just are, are considered to be creating a hostile workplace environment just by asking, not by pushing or anything else, but just by asking. Um, and, I guess I think this comes back to something you said before, that there seems to be this perception that we can somehow get rid of awkwardness in in social interactions by putting enough rules in place. But we can never get rid of awkwardness. We can never get rid of vulnerability. and We can never get rid of the difficulty of saying no to people. That's all very true. It, It goes with the territory of being human. Yeah, yeah. Kat, is there anything that you have wanted to say or wanted to raise that I haven't given you a chance to say or raise? Oh, gosh, I don't think so. All I can think is that I said a whole bunch of things I didn't necessarily intend to say, <laughs> like telling you about about the Siegfried and Roy. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm happy to leave it here. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope nobody takes that as an instruction because, of course, if they do, you and I are going to be legally liable Right. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, if anybody has done this already, I would love to hear how it went. Um, If you're thinking about doing it, it actually, I think, probably legally qualifies as rape. So don't. And maybe it's definitely it's (laughs) definitely rape. Um, I hope if you have done this, you're listening to us from a secure prison cell. Um. (laughs) Paying your debt to society as you should. Exactly. Um, people need to be protected from this kind of sociopathy. Um, So on that uh, cheery note, (laughs) (laughs) um, thank you so much, Kat, and thank you for agreeing to a more informal chat than I usually have on this podcast, but I think it might be a fun um, change of pace for listeners. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. 
All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.